Chapter Thirteen of Thoughts Are Things by Prentice Malford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen: The Accession of New Thought. New thought is new life. When an invention, a discovery, first breaks on the inventor's mind, it fills him with joy. The blood in his veins surges with a fresher impetus. The author or poet is lifted into ecstasy of emotion by a new conception. I mean the relatively few creative authors and poets, not the many who, borrowing the fire of genius, put it in their own lanterns and pass it off, often successfully as their own. A piece of good news as we term it in a period of gloom, depression, discouragement, possible realization of a hope, the removal of an ill or danger, is but a thought after all, is but the picture in the mind of the thing desired, is not the thing itself, yet how it brings strength to the whole body. An entertaining spectacle a drama so perfectly acted as to absorb all one's attention, an interview with one to whom we are strongly attracted, a pursuit or exercise or art which interests and fascinates. All these are as food and nourishment, stimulation to the body, and in the absorption or excitement of the moment, Hunger for material food may pass away or be forgotten. So we do not live by bread alone, but our natures demand ever new and newer food for thought. The play, so charming when first seen, may become tiresome through repetition. The air, so fascinating when first heard, becomes worn through familiarity. There may even be longed for a change from the quality of the thought of the mind most attractive to us. I mean for all these a change, but only for a time. The play, the opera, the artist may in time be seen again, and with increase of pleasure, either from the influence of former association, or from new growths and shadings in the artist's rendering or from new capacity in ourselves to see what we could not see before. Call, then, all new thought, and, if you please, new emotion, food, food as necessary to make the relatively perfect physical and mental man or woman, as is the bread we eat. We desire ever fresh food. We similarly desire and need always new and fresh thought. Old thought, constant repetition of the same thought, involves decay, sluggishness of mind, sluggishness of body. Suppose that we rose each morn with the absolute certainty that each day was to be a day involving to us more or less of the excitement of discovery in something useful and enjoyable, and also of similar use to others, something endurable for us and others, 
endurable for eternity, some unexpected branching out of yesterday's truth, which for yesterday seemed fully grown, something telling us how life may be made still fuller of durable and harmless enjoyment, some great law principle in nature, recognized possibly for the first time in some heretofore called little thing, in the fall of a leaf, in the coloring of a leaf, by the autumnal frost, in its almost equal vividness of color, coming through the heat of spring. What must be the pleasure to an open and receptive mind to find today an increase of improvement in the quality, almost despaired of yesterday, an increase of patience in doing the perplexing work, an increase of courage, an increase of perception to see beauty in what yesterday it passed by with indifference, an increase of power to control unruly appetite, an increase of power to drive away unpleasant and therefore injurious thought. Would not such be encouraging, cheering, life-giving, health-giving thoughts? This order and accession of ever-new thought knows no stop in any direction. It says, Are you orderly today? You will find some power and room and capacity to be more orderly tomorrow. Was your last effort in music, in painting, in composition, in acting, in oratory, your greatest triumph? You will find some way of making it more perfect tomorrow. That will take nothing from the last effort. It is only a more beautiful and delicate tint for some already beautiful picture. The consciousness of such never-ending growth of improvement is also food for the growing mind, other than bread. Yet it is bread. It is the bread of life, and to be desired as our daily bread. Would not also the thought each morning that a great power, an infinitely wise mind, was always ready to give more knowledge to help you through troubles, troubles from without and troubles from within. Would not such thought, and the trust begotten of it, be as food, strength, and healthy stimulation? Especially when the reality of this power, and its ability to aid, had been proven to you many times, so that the hope had become a conviction? Grant that new thought is healthy stimulation, and also a necessary food to a more perfected life, and the question arrives, how shall we get it? In other words, how may we attune ourselves, or how may we become more receptive to all that is beautiful and useful in nature? For in our religion, the useful always implies the beautiful. It is almost farcical to answer, live a pure life. That implies so much, so much in so many cases to be done, 
so much of inherent tendency to be outgrown, so many difficulties to be met, so many conditions necessary for such life so difficult to make. The desire for accumulation seems a law of our natures. In its cruder working, it accumulates money. In its higher form, it would accumulate powers and qualities of mind. I am dollars or dollars richer than I was this morning, says with satisfaction and pleasure at night the money accumulator. That pleasant thought is to him a bit of the bread of life, but not of enduring life, or, in the end, in it all healthy life. I, may say another man at night, am richer than I was this morning by so much more patience, by a bit more skill or dexterity in my art, by certain knowledge of which I knew nothing twenty-four hours ago. Are we yet fully awakened to the thought that we are receptacles for thought, and with thought knowledge, and with knowledge power, and that our capacity for receiving all these may be limitless, and that the supply of knowledge, power, new thought in the universe, is limitless also, and that it is all ours to draw from, and that the bank can no more break than eternity can end. There are thousands of things, events, and scenes in your past life which it is more profitable to forget than to remember. By so forgetting, you allow entrance for new idea, which is new life. By remembering, you prevent the coming to you of such new idea and life. By forgetting, I mean that you should avoid living in unpleasant past scenes and remembrances. Absolutely to forget or wipe out completely from memory anything it has once taken note of is impossible. For everything you have seen, learned, sensed, or heard is stored away and is capable under certain circumstances of being brought to view again. In place of the term forgetting, it would be better to say, you should cultivate the power of driving from your mind and putting out of sight whatever makes you feel unhappy or whatever you discover that is unprofitable to remember. It is impossible, absolutely, to wipe out anything your memory has once written on its tablets, for whatever the scene, event, or experiences may have been, it has become a part of your real self or spirit. In other words, your spirit is made up of all its experiences and consequent remembrances extending to an infinite past. Of these, some are vivid, some vague, and much is buried out of present sight, but capable, under certain circumstances, of being called to remembrance. To destroy such remembrance, if possible, would be to destroy so much of your mind. All experiences are valuable for the wisdom they bring or suggest, but when you have once gained wisdom and knowledge from any experience, there is little profit in repeating it, 
especially if it has been unpleasant. You do actually repeat it when you remember it or live it over again in thought. This is what people are doing who brood over past misfortunes and disappointments. It is what people are doing when they recall with regret their youth as bright and joyous as compared with the gloom of their middle age or old age. Live in the pleasant remembrance of your youth, if you so desire. That will do you good. But do not set it in its brightness and freshness against a dark background of the present. Do not think of it in that vein. Remember that the time of your infancy and youth, with all its freshness and newness, was also the time of some other people's old age, when the world seemed stale and joyless, when to them all that life seemed capable of yielding seemed exhausted, when nothing seemed to remain but to wither and die. Remember also that today, if the world seems less bright than formerly, if the sun seems setting instead of rising, it seems now to the boy and girl of ten or fifteen as it did to you at that age. No person could hold his or her physical body and enjoy life, who, as they lived on, lived in the past and refused to set or open their minds to the future. In so doing, they accumulate more and more of the old and relatively lifeless thought, and this element materializes itself on the body. Their flesh, bone, and blood then become an actual expression of the dead and inert spirit. To live carrying such an ever-increasing load must result only in weakness and misery, so long as the spirit can carry it. But the mind rejecting the old, which it has no use for, and ever pressing on to the new, adds the new thought to itself. And this newness of idea will materialize a newer body. You do actually make the things before pleasant or unpleasant for you according as you think of them in advance. There is a class of people who, if in difficulties, and anyone suggests a way out, instantly raise objections and find difficulties in the plan proposed. When, in thought, we so find difficulties, we actually make them. To lay awake nights and brood, devise, turn over, or invent possible coming troubles is force and industry ill-employed in preparing the way for those troubles. In all business we must press on in mind to the successful result. We must see in mind or imagination the thing we plan completed, the system or method organized, and in working order, the movement or undertaking advancing and ever growing stronger and more profitable. To spend time and force in looking back and living past troubles or obstacles over again, and out of such living and mental action to conjure more difficulties or oppositions, is literally to spend time and force in destroying your undertaking, or in manufacturing obstacles to put in your own way. 
forgetting the things behind and pressing on to those before is a maxim having a thousand intensely practical applications every business success is founded on it men who cease to live in old methods and press forward to new achieve the greatest financial success but men who having started out during their physical youth with the new allow themselves with advancing years to hold on to what was new in their youth but which is relatively old now are really on the back track money may continue to pour in upon them but their methods are really out of date and a few more years will see their business superseded by the newer system if you were debilitated weak or sick yesterday at any hour do not commence to-day with living it in thought in the same weakness or debility at that hour forget it live away from it and press onward to the thought of being strong well and vigorous at that hour when you in mind look behind and live behind the thought of the sickness weakness or indisposition of yesterday you are actually making the conditions for having the same physical troubles when you at the day's commencement in thought look before to the new thing the thought of health and strength at the time your lack of vigor commenced you are making the conditions for realizing such health and strength if it does not come the first day of such trial try the next and the next after that the state you seek will come in time perhaps you say to me in mind but how can you prove these assertions they have not been realized in our time decay and death at last overtake all you can commence yourself to prove them if you experiment with any of the methods here suggested for working thought to profitable result and you prove for yourself ever so little you must thereby gain some faith in this law if the law is by you proven a little is it unreasonable to say it will prove more if followed in this direction unreasoning prejudices are bred out of this continual living in the past the man of sixty or seventy often lives in moods usages and customs peculiar to his youth he accepts these as the most fit and proper thing for him he would probably regard with disfavor and prejudice the man who at his daily business should wear the knee-breeches stockings waistcoat ruffled shirt and cocked hat of the eighteenth century yet such style was common one hundred years ago his great-grandfather probably wore such a suit yet his great-grandfather would probably have regarded with the same disfavor and prejudice the man dressed in the fashion of to-day so a few years relatively have begotten these two unreasoning prejudices with the great-grandfather and the great-grandson founded only on the fact that they were fashions peculiar to the youth of each it is of course 
impossible for a person to fly in the face of popular custom or usage, to dress differently or, in certain ways, live differently, without bringing on him unpleasant and even injurious results. For the action of many minds, sending toward you ever the thought of prejudice, dislike, or ridicule, would tend to injure mind and body. But the sentiment which sends this kind of thought toward another, who departs from any established custom, when that person thereby affects no one's peace or comfort, is a gross error. It is an unreasoning mental tyranny which so regards with hostile mind a man who, for example, should today adopt a costume of the ancient Greeks, a garb, by the way, more sensible and comfortable than ours. Less than two hundred years ago, such a sentiment mobbed the man in England who carried the first umbrella. This sentiment comes of that fossilized condition of mind which persists in living in the things that are behind and averts itself from such as are before. Life is a continual advance forward. If we are advancing forward, it is better to look forward. And all are advancing, even the dullest, the grossest, and most perverse. A mighty, eternal, and incomprehensible force pushes us all forward. But while all are so being pushed, many linger and look back. Unconsciously, they oppose this force. So to do is to court evil, pain, disease, and distress. Whatever the mind is set upon, or whatever it keeps most in view, that it is bringing to it, and the continual thought or imagining must at last take form and shape in the world of seen and tangible things. I repeat this assertion often in these books, and in various forms of expression, because this fact is the cornerstone of your happiness or misery, permanent health and prosperity, or poverty. It needs to be kept as much as possible in mind. Our thought is the unseen magnet, ever attracting its correspondence in things seen and tangible. As we realize this more and more clearly, we shall become more and more careful to keep our minds set in the right direction. We shall be more and more careful to think happiness and success instead of misery and failure. It is very wonderful that the happiness or misery of our lives should be based on what seems so simple a law and method. But so-called simple things in nature, on investigation, generally turn out incomprehensible and ever-deepening mysteries. What most concerns us is to know a cause or agency that will produce a given result. When we realize that we can and do think ourselves into what we are, as regards health, wealth, and position, we realize also that we have found in ourselves the pearl of great price. And when we hasten to tell our neighbor that he may seek and find it in himself, this pearl and power also, 
for no one is made poorer through his finding that which can belong to him alone. And all are made richer and happier, as each finds his or her pearl, through the power it gives them to add to the general wealth and happiness. Life is fuller of possibilities for pleasure than has ever been realized. The real life means a perpetual and ever-increasing maturity. It means the preservation of the physical body, so that it can be used on this stratum of existence whenever the spirit desires to use it. It means the preservation of that body, not only free from pain and sickness, but free from the debility, weakness, and decay of what we call old age, which is in reality only the wearing out of the instrument used by the spirit for lack of knowledge to ever recuperate and regenerate it. Life means the development in us of powers and pleasures which fiction in its highest flights has never touched. It means an ever-increasing freshness, an ever-increasing perception and realization of all that is grand, wonderful, and beautiful in the universe, a constantly increasing discovery of more and more that is grand, beautiful, and wonderful, and a constantly increasing capacity for the emotional part of our natures to sense such happiness. Life is eternal in the discovery and realization of these joys. Their source is inexhaustible. Their quality and character must be unknown until they reach us. In the words of the apostolic record, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for him that love him. In so-called ordinary things, we get out of our lives and our senses but the merest fragment of the pleasure that can be made capable of giving us. Our food is capable of giving far more pleasure to the sense of taste than it may now. We do not get nearly as much pleasure from the ear and eye as they are capable of giving. With bodies more highly developed and refined, food, when taken into the stomach, should act as a healthy stimulant and give that impulse, vigor, and bounding life which it gives to the young animal. The movement of every muscle, as in walking, can be made to give pleasure. Through following the spiritual law, that peace of mind, which passeth all understanding, is in the future to come to many. That it has not in the past been realized is no proof that it will not be. Life, then, whether its forces are in activity or at rest, will be perpetual Elysium. But millions of our race do not look forward to such joyous possibilities at all. They have never heard of them. The great majority would not believe did they hear of them. They press on in mind to what? To a belief which grows stronger with years that life is short, that old age and decay are absolute certainties and must come to all, that at a certain age of the body its powers must decrease, 
and that as weak and feeble old men and women now are before their eyes, so in time they must be, and that one great aim of life should be to lay up a store of money to provide for old age. These are not pleasant things to contemplate. The many do not contemplate them. They shut their eyes to these gloomy views of their future, but they believe in them just the same. They believe and dread. If they believe, they must in mind press on to such belief. It is the pressing forward that makes of the thing believed in a material or physical reality. Providing for old age makes the old age of the body, because the person so providing sees him or herself for years as helpless and decrepit. What the mind so projects for the future, it is making for the future. A material thing, money, is relied on to secure one from ills, when all material things are quite powerless to prevent such ills. The rich man with an aged, worn, diseased body can only buy with his money a better room and bed to live in than the poor man. His money does not prevent disease and weakness. It cannot give him an appetite for the costliest food. In pain and anguish, the emperor is in all respects on the same level with the pauper, for in extreme misery a soft bed and numerous attendants give a little or no comfort. Now in all this, thought element worked in ignorance in the wrong direction proves that it brings a result, but a woeful one. It is only the cultivation of the power of the spirit over the body that can prevent these ills. That power we first begin to cultivate and increase when we come to recognize and believe that the mind or spirit is the power governing our bodies, and that whatever mind persistently images, thinks, or imagines, it makes. Now, unconsciously, we image in the wrong direction. We think the old age or wearing out of the body must be, because, so far as we know, it has always been. We press on in imagination and unwelcome belief to gloom and physical decay. We hold these sad pictures ever in our minds. Having no faith in the brighter view, we do not look toward that view to life and ever-increasing life. In the New Testament, the last revelation, we find the Christian and apostolic teaching full of the sentiment of life and life everlasting. Death is not argued or implied as an absolute necessity, but as an enemy, which is ultimately to be destroyed. It was never said or implied that the advent of great revelations was not to be until millions and millions of years in the future. The dawn of such advent may be now. It is now not because of any one man's writings or assertions, but because many minds are now open to the reception of the greater revelation, which for centuries has been knocking at humanity's door, 
but could not enter by reason of the obtuseness and dull ear of those whom it sought to arouse and benefit. The only dead people in the universe are the spiritually dead, those dead in trespasses and sins, who have not as yet learned to forget, or rather to refuse to live in and depend on, the relatively dead or inert element of earth instead of that drawn from a higher source. Still the few in the vanguard pressing onward are crying out, Why, here under our noses is the greatest of all motive powers. Why, human thought is a real element, a real force, darting out like electricity from every man's or woman's mind, injuring or relieving, killing or curing, building fortunes or tearing them down, working for good or ill, every moment, night or day, asleep or awake, carving, molding, and shaping people's faces and making them ugly or agreeable. Before you give so much of your thought to others, ask, in view of these possibilities, if some is not due to yourself. If you can build yourself up into a living power, if you can, with others, prove that physical health and vigor can take the place of old age, that all disease can be banished from the body, that material riches and necessities can come of laws and methods not now generally practiced, and that life is not the short, unsatisfactory, hopeless thing which at the best it is now, will you not to the world at large do a thousandfold more good than if you expended your thought in feeding a few hungry mouths or relieving a few physical necessities of others? Our richest men, our rulers, our famous men in art, science, and war, our professors, our ministers, our greatest successes, what is their end? Weakness, decay, and disease. Our more thoughtful people admit that by the time they have learned something of life, it is time to die. The obituary from the living is at best an apology for the unsatisfactory ending of a human life. Mankind demands something better. That demand, that cry, has been swelling and increasing in volume for many centuries. Demand must always be answered. This demand is now being answered, first to the few, next to the many. New light, new knowledge, and new results in human life, and all it involves, are coming to this earth. End of chapter 13 End of Thoughts or Things by Prentice Mulford